following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap your empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's go memory lane here. Flashback to 12 months, roughly 12 months ago. Stood up here uh, for what's our year in review sermon, which is actually coming up next week. Um, a chance for us to sort of reflect back on God's grace to us in the past year to look forward to the coming year. And so a year ago, I stood up here and I, I cast this vision. Um, I feel like an idiot saying it now because 2020 is like, <laughs> you know, who was I to think like that? Uh, you know, but, but, but the whole, the thrust of this, uh, of 2020 setting out you know, in January, was praying, asking God to double us by discipleship, that our church would grow as we make disciples um, that would lead to planting churches and renewing our city, Um, which really, so that that was sort of like the pipe dream, but, but really the aim of the whole thing was that this year, 2020, would be the year of prayer, that we would go to God with big prayers, asking him for big things that only he could do, in line with Ephesians 4 that says that God, who is able to do far more than we could even ask, just asking God to do some big stuff here in this church, in our lives, our hearts, and little do we know what 2020 would hold in store for us. Um, I think it's fitting that we dub 2020 the year of prayer, at least that, that's what it was for me, um, asking God to do big things, but, but really, 2020 was a year of prayer, like just get us through this year is what it boiled down to. Like just Lord, please get us through this year. And so in some ways, 2020 made us pray pray like never before. Um, And so starting out the year with this dubbing it the year of prayer, uh, and and then here we are, we're closing out the year with a sermon on prayer, which I thought was fitting. Um, But it just happens to fall here as we come to uh, the Lord's Prayer within the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And I think when it comes to the topic of prayer, a lot of us just feel insufficient about it right? We, we think, oh yeah, prayer, we, sh- we should ourselves. Oh, I should be praying more. I should make it more of a, an effort in my day, daily basis, right? It should be something that goes on. We just feel the sense of guilt, like I'm not doing it enough. And, it's, and maybe I do it, you know, 10 minutes, but maybe I should be doing it an hour or whatever it might be. Or it's just like not very heartfelt and going through the motions. And so it's one of those things that we just don't feel like this is really a, a, a gleaming spot of our spiritual life. 
And I don't think it's because we don't want to. I, th- I think there is a desire in us to pray, but, but it's not necessarily prayer isn't the first thing that we, we gravitate towards as far as if I've got an hour of free time, what am I gonna do with it, right? We tend to fill our, our time with entertaining ourselves, doing stuff that needs to get checked off of the checklist so that we can go about our business, right? It's not something that's like, oh, I'm gonna capitalize on this free time by turning to God in prayer. And, and I think that... Um, there's just a lot of distractions in our life that, that prevent it from us. We, we, and this thing that Piper, John Piper said uh, about 10 years ago, I got a slide of it actually. I don't know, Abby, are you still back there? There's got a tweet. Um, is it up there? There it is. Oh, come back, Johnny. Here he goes. He says, one of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Yeah, 10 years ago he said that, and I feel like it's even more true today that there's a sense of, man, my prayer life isn't because I don't have the time for it. It's just one of those things that I don't necessarily prioritize. It's not high up there for most of us. And, and I wonder what causes this disconnect for the majority of us here, that we know we should be praying, we know what we have, have the time to do it, yet we don't actually do it. Now, I think the reason, like, I think the reason why this is the case, why, why John Piper's poking at this reality of prayerlessness, it's not necessarily because we don't know how to pray. It's not that we need to necessarily be taught how to pray, which, I mean, Jesus does teach us how to pray, so that's one thing that we do need to know. But for the, most of us, the, the reason why we don't pray is we don't see the incredible treasure, the resource that it is for us. In fact, that's one of the things that Jesus hammers at here in this passage in Matthew chapter six, verses five through 15, is that he's talking about a reward, right? The, the, that there are people who are praying out in public because they want this sort of reward, but, but the, the reward comes to us in secret. The treasure is in secret. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we see Jesus, he shows us how to pray, or really, he starts out showing us how not to pray, and then how to pray. But really what he's at is showing us the glory of prayer, the, the, the riches, the treasure, the reward of, of praying. Now, in 2018, uh, we took time and we broke down the Lord's Prayer um, line by line over six or seven weeks, um, really dug into it line by line. So, so this is sort of like a, an overview of that. Um, and actually, I have a resource left over from that. The first person that, that comes up to me after the service and asks for this, I'm gonna give you this book by J.R. Packer um, just to get it off my shelf. But... Great little book on prayer. Um, and so this, this is not gonna like trying to rehash six or seven weeks of sermons, rather just an overview. And one of the neat, neat things here is we're setting it within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus's most famous discourse as he goes up a, a, a hillside, the beginning of his ministry, preaching, he announces the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, telling people, telling them about who is invited. We see the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, right? all these people he's calling to himself. And then he says, this is what it looks like to live the kingdom of life Life, the kingdom life of heaven here on earth. And so this, this passage here on prayer really is unique because it's saying, first of all, kingdom people pray, but then Jesus is saying, here's how they pray. They pray in a very specific way, and it's not motivated by duty. Like, it's not this checklist of, of religiosity that we have to go down through. Like, did I read my Bible? Did I pray today? Did I, uh, did I fast sometime this week? Did, you know, it's not, not about the, 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 the metrics or the checklist of things, but rather Jesus is showing us that kingdom people love to pray because of what it affords us. It's motivated not by duty, but delight. 
And so in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, we see uh, last week he, he's contrasting two types of people, the people who belong to the kingdom of heaven and those who do not belong to the kingdom of heaven, specifically those people who are under the, gu- the guise of, of religion, right, the, the religious elite. He's been talking about the hypocrites, and you see this even as we open up verse five. He says, you must not be like the hypocrites. Again, that's, that's language that was repeated from last week. And he's specifically pinpointing here, as he's talking about the hypocrites, the, the religious elite of the Pharisees and the scribes, those people in the first century that just were put together from a religious, from a spiritual perspective. People would look at them and say, oh yeah, that person They've got their foot in the door with God. They know what's going on. And Jesus is saying, actually, they don't know what's going on because what they're doing is just a big show. That, that's where the word hypocrite comes from. It's like, uh, kind of like a, a word for actor. It's, it's pretend, they're playing, they put on a face to show some sort of religious, ha- have like a religious veneer, but actually the substance of their heart, their trueness of who they are at their core doesn't line up with their external appearances. And Jesus is saying kingdom people have an inside out reality, that what's true in the heart will overflow in the external rather than the outside in approach that the Pharisees and the scribes take. And so through this, these couple passages that we'll see here, Jesus shows us that you can be busy with religious activity. I mean, like some of the most noble things that you can find and fill your time with, you can be busy doing these religious things, uh, but it doesn't necessarily make you righteous. And so we can give, we can pray, we can fast, and not be righteous, be a poser is really what it is, you can be a hypocrite. It's not virtuous, it's not what Jesus is after. Jesus is after an inside out transformation of, of righteousness and this is exactly why Jesus says in verse five, do not be like the hypocrites. And when you pray, specifically talking about prayer, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now Jesus, right, again, it's not a show. This is not an act. Don't be like the hypocrites. Now, some people come to this and say, well, is Jesus, is Jesus abolishing public prayer? Is that what he's doing here? When you, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who are in the synagogues or out on the street corner. Don't be, no, Jesus isn't abolishing public prayer. In fact, you go through the Old Testament, you go through the New Testament, public prayer, group corporate prayer is part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ. Is that we gather, we rally together for prayer for one another, for our city, for the mission of God to advance, that God's glory would be known here on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is not abolishing public prayer. Rather, he's critiquing the self-promoting tendencies of the hypocrites, of the religious elites, right? They're, they're being a little bit extra here, a little dramatic uh, with their spiritual activities where they are just drawing attention to themselves. So it's like this. If, if, think of it like this. If, I, if I'm standing up here preaching and, and the Spirit's just hitting you, yeah, it's like you might just kind of take a moment and say, Spirit, I welcome your activity, I, I welcome your conviction, I welcome your encouragement that you're bringing to my life and you sort of just receive it as a moment for yourself but, but what the Pharisees would do, sort of broadcast this, right, right as I'm preaching, they'd stand up, right, start praying, I don't know what they'd do, they're acting all crazy, right, drawing attention to themselves, right, oh I, I'm so spiritual, I'm receiving this from the Lord or even on the street corners, right, they go out in public, you know, one thing, missionaries, Christians often do, church plants, 
You know, they do these prayer walks. They walk around the city praying for a place, but they're not trying to draw attention to themselves. And here we see the Pharisees and the scribes doing this thing where they're trying to put the spotlight on themselves to show just how religiously superior they are. Now, this is kind of weird stuff, right? Standing up in the middle of church service, going out, you know, publicly praying over parts of the city just seems pretty weird. I've never seen this done in our day and age. But I have seen people broadcast their spiritual veneer through social media, right? Go to Instagram, go to Facebook. Those prayers that are just broadcasted so people know, okay, this, this must be a spiritual prayer. They got their foot in the door with God. Or they say things like, I love this, like, oh, I'm praying for you. And it's like, do they really pray for you? I don't know, but they're saying they are, right? They're, doing, they're putting some sort of portrayal of a spiritual life in front of people so people go, oh, wow, wow, wow. Like that, that person must, you know, they must, they must really know God well. Or you get that, that moment, that, that candid moment, right? You post it, you're reading your Bible, you got that cup of coffee, just happens to be positioned just perfectly. Hoping to get some of those likes, people see that and just, oh man. That is a faithful son of a gun. <laughs> see, we, we find creative ways to do the same exact things that the Pharisees do but just maybe like with a different method, right? Drawing attention to ourselves. Now I'm not saying it's bad to pray for people, you know, post a prayer or whatever, but when you're doing it out of trying to gain praise from people, right, and not an actual prayer from the heart to commune with God, there is a disconnect here between what your spiritual life actually is and what you're portraying to the public. Now to be honest, I've been guilty of this. You can scroll back through my Facebook feed, my Instagram, go back a few years. Don't go too back, back too far because then it gets embarrassing. But, but I have been guilty of this myself, right? Portraying an image. But that's not the only way that I've been guilty of portraying an image of, of being extra spiritual, right? I think one thing that you, you step your foot in, um, in the door and you see people um, like in missional community contacts, you're praying with other Christians, right? You, they, they try to put their best foot forward by using the most... Uh, elegant and elaborate vocabulary just to prove how spiritual they are, right? I've been so guilty of this in my past, right? Instead of focusing on true prayer, of communing with God, there's just this, this portrayal, this, this like face, uh, a front-facing uh, veneer of, man, here's, here's, here's my credentials. Here's, here's, I, here's how I know I got it in with God. And so we heap up empty words, which is what uh, Jesus identifies as the second way that you can fail at praying. This is the second way he says not to pray. He says in in verse seven, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, Christian people tend to use, to do this a little bit differently. I wanna make a distinction here, because Jesus speaks to the Gentiles. I think that Christian people tend to use big uh, ornate vocabulary, use like big theological words just to prove that you've got it together, right? That, that somehow that these words, even though you have to look them up after you say them, prove that you're spiritually mature, right? We, we sort of do this ourselves so people hear it and like, oh wow, they must really read their Bible, right? They must really got it together. Now that, that's how Christians tend to heap up these empty words, right? These big ornate words. And it's not that God doesn't love those beauty the beauty of it, and, and those, there's not a place for those words. It's just, why are you doing it? Trying to draw attention 
to yourself. Now, he's speaking here of the Gentiles in verse seven. He pinpoints the Gentiles, how they heap up these, um, these words trying to, in hopes that God would hear them. Now, who are Gentiles? Gentiles are, are pagan people, right? Non-Jewish people is kind of the classification. There's Jews and there's Gentiles, there's the, the people of God and those um, who are not the people of God, uh, not from the Abrahamic line. And so like why, if Jesus is going after the hypocrites here, which it seems like that, that's rightly so, why would Jesus pivot and then now kind of pinpoint the Gentiles, like the, the pagan people? Uh, and it's because they treat prayer more like superstition. See, prayer isn't actually like going to God. It's, it's more like shaking a magic eight ball, hoping to get the answer you desire. You call out, God, if you're out there, if there's any God out there, or, or any of the gods, any of the myriad of God, any of the pantheon of gods, I hope you hear me, right? And we start bargaining. It's sort of like this thing, like, I don't know if you're out there, but if you do this, then I'll do this, Right? We make this swap, and that's basically the modern pagan prayer. That's how modern, secular people treat prayer. It's either a convenience thing, I'll go to God and ask for what I want, or it's a bargaining piece. It's sort of like this, this um, throwing something to the wall and hoping it sticks. Now, the first century people would literally call out to all kinds of different gods, right? right idols, the, the gods of the people, of the pagan people, and and. And the reason why they're heaping up words is they're not sure if anybody's gonna hear them. So they just throw out, they're praying to whoever might hear them, throwing out all these prayers, heaping up words, not sure if any God hears, and if they do, maybe one God will hear, and, and fingers crossed, hopefully have, they have the power to do something about it, right? Because it's one thing to pray to a God, but it's another thing to pray to a God who can actually do something to provide help. They don't know. So they, they just make a mass appeal hoping that one of the gods will be intrigued, want to flex a little bit, come down and help them and do what they're asking for. And this is why they're called babblers. They're just using these tags. It's like, you know, you, you, um, on social media, those hashtags that, that sort of embed in your picture. So that way, if you click on it, it just kind of populates. So if, you know, the same thing, the same idea. I, I'm, I'm hashtagging this god. Poop, I hope he clicks on it and sees all my prayer requests and maybe one of them will see it. So I'm just gonna slam it with as many hashtags as I can. Now you think that the religious people would have a leg up on the pagans when it comes to the realm of prayer. But Jesus says that they both fail at prayer in different ways, but there's a commonality to their failings at prayer. It's that neither one of these groups regard God, their heavenly Father, as the one true God. See, the hypocrites, they're, they're not really interested in going to prayer and connecting with God. They're, they're interested in prayer because it promotes their self-image. That's their reward. That's what Jesus said. Like they, they go out and they have received their reward because they're praised by other people. That's it. That's all they get. So it's not about God. They just want to, they pray to be seen by man. The pagan people just pray to whoever. They throw up their prayers, throw them against a the wall, hoping that they'll be heard by any God, not, not necessarily the one true God. So there's this disconnect. And this is why Jesus says don't pray like them. To pray like this, to heap up empty words, to, to make a spectacle of prayer is doing a disservice to prayer and you miss the reward of it altogether. It's like um, driving a Lamborghini to go get groceries, right? You have this invaluable resource right here at your fingertips at prayer. And, and to use it the way that the religious people, the way the pagans do it is such a, an, utter, an underutilization of it. So what Jesus is trying to do is reframe how immeasurably powerful and how great of a privilege prayer is 
for us, yet we tend to squander it. See, the problem with this disconnect that I identified earlier about we, we, we should pray, we know that we should pray, but we don't pray, is that we have a small view of prayer. We don't necessarily see the reward that Jesus is pointing to here. And in not seeing the reward, we miss the purpose. Yes, it's true that, that prayer affords us the ability to go to God and petition and ask for things, but oftentimes we just boil it down to that. We go to God when we need something. But Jesus wants to show us it's, it's far bigger than just asking for help or for, for provisions. That's not even the main thing. And what Jesus is trying to show us here, I'm, I'm gonna lay it out, four provisions, or excuse me, four functions, four purpose. The, the four purpi, purposes, purposes, the four targets of prayer. I should have worked that out a little bit more. The first one is simply this, and this is the apex of prayer. It's communion with God. See, Jesus identifies who we're praying to. It's not a, he's not teaching us how to pray by saying, hey, when you pray, pray like this, dear God, or some of the gods, any of the gods, anybody out there. He teaches us to pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now there's so much significance in this in saying our Father in heaven. So Jesus has been going through and he's been been talking about how God in heaven is his Father, but now he opens up to us this reality that we have access to God just as Jesus does as our Father. So it's not just my father or your father, but our father, this corporate identity that we have as a church, that, that we approach the God who is in heaven, the one true God. And as Jesus allows us to approach, he gives us the same access that he has. He, he reminds us that, that yes, he's a father in the sense that he's approachable, right? We can come to him when we're, we're beat up and we're broken down, right? We treat him like, like he's our daddy, right? That, that's one of the joys of having kids. Like so they get hurt, right? They skin their knee and they just run. Usually it's mom, but sometimes it's me. They run to say dad and, and it's not so much that I need to address the problem, it's just that I need to be scooped up in their arms, Right, that, that's what they're looking for, the, the affirmation that pulled in that embrace, and that's what Jesus says we have in God as our Father. He, he's the one that we can take refuge in. We can collapse into his arms as ourselves without needing to posture and pretend or try to earn favor with God. But at the same time, Jesus points to his imminence, like his nearness to us. There is this transcendence because God is a holy God who is seated in heaven. So there's, there's this weightiness, there's this reverence as we approach God. So it's not just like, hey, Dad, and we walk away. But we sort of get swept up in this moment of glory in prayer, that there's a gravity to it. It's like, you know, if we're, think of it like this. We ought to be approaching prayer, ought to be approaching our Heavenly Father as a, as a Cubs fans approaches Wrigley Stadium. There's a sacredness to this ground, right? Every Cubs fan knows that. You walk into it, there's so much history there, a lot of losing seasons, but there's a couple of good ones, right? That, that there's just like a lot of history being here. There's a reverence as you approach. That's the same sort of mentality that we should have as we approach our Heavenly Father, right? There's a joy, there's an enthusiasm as the, the doors are open to us, but there's also this gravity. As God is holy, that means he's, he's unlike us in the best kind of way. See, in all of our failings, and all of our inadequacies, God doesn't have those. He's perfect, he's, he's completely unlike us in the best way possible. 
And so this is really the greatest gift of prayer that, that Jesus affords us here is that God, our Heavenly Father, becomes available to us. Hebrews talks about now we can approach the throne of grace with great confidence, right? We can come to our Father and, and run to him, take refuge in him, knowing that he has the power to answer our prayers and do something about that. Now, beyond just asking for help, right? You know, kid comes, oh, I skin my knee, I need, you know, pay attention to that. Beyond just coming to God for help in those moments of crisis, there is an invitation for us at whatever point of the day, at any time, for us to know our Heavenly Father in a deep and meaningful way and to commune with Him, to simply enjoy His presence. So there's sometimes that when we pray, our prayer should stop with verse nine. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's it. I'm acknowledging you. I sense your presence here with me. You enjoy him. You experience him. You savor this presence on a daily basis. Now, religious people, pagan people, they don't have time for that. They don't have time for communion because they're just after the results of getting God to do what they're asking for. And so here Jesus shows us this is what true righteousness looks like. This is what it looks like to be a kingdom person that you just go to God and enjoy him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And prayer is one of the avenues that we get to enjoy God forever. So that's the first one, commune with God. The second purpose of prayer, to align ourselves with God. Jesus goes on, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, what he's saying to us here is to, in prayer, we align our will, our desire, our agenda to God's. Not to try to sway God into our view, not to pull him into doing what we think he ought to be doing, but that we would conform ourselves to God's will and his purposes. In other words, we're praying so that our hearts would desire heaven. Now, I I have the freedom in Christ to make my request known to God. We have permission, right? There's permission to make our requests known to God, but ultimately here, this posture of going to God in prayer is meant to be formative for us, not formative for God. That it'll be shaping us around God's will not trying to shape God around our own. And so when we go to God with these requests, we do so with an open-handedness, that that we're gonna ask God for his his will to be done because we know that it's ultimately the best thing that can be done. See, this comes back to knowing God as our Heavenly Father. If he's truly our Heavenly Father, we know that he's a loving and compassionate Father. Ultimately, everything that he does is for our good. And so I can entrust myself to him and say, Not my will, but yours be done. Now part of this prayer and praying that God's will be done, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven, is that the reality that this sweeps us up into God's redemptive plan. See this part I think that we miss, right? It's not just a matter of saying, hey, you know, hopefully things pan out in my favor, but but to say, God, I wanna be swept up in the story. I want to live for the kingdom of heaven. God, I want to join you in your mission. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And part of that means that people will be converted to Jesus through the faithful witness of Christians like you and me. 
So it's not my own agenda, it's not my own comfort, it's not my own idols that sort of dictates my life. I'm saying, God, your will be done. And a lot of times when God calls us into his mission, that there's a lot of idols that have to be expelled from our lives. The idol of comfort, the idol of fear of man, the idol of convenience and consumerism, right? All of these things. So we're asking God to eject these things from my life so that we can live in line with his will and share his heart for this world. So that is the alignment that Jesus wants to accomplish through prayer. Now, third, we're good at this, is, is petition. We're asking God for physical and spiritual provisions. We see this in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Now, one of the glories of, of Christianity is that there is not a dichotomy between physical and spiritual. God created both. He said the physical man is good, the spiritual man is good. God created us with both. So we don't just go with our spiritual needs. We bring our, our physical needs because God is a God who cares for us in, in a comprehensive way. And so we can go to God and ask for our daily bread, and that just means our, our daily provisions. What do we need to get through this day? Now it's interesting when you go through the New Testament and look at all of the prayers of the apostles, there's never a prayer in the New Testament praying for a change of circumstances. Do you realize that? There's never a prayer where the apostle Paul says, hey, this really stinks, can you just get me out of here? Paul understands, Peter understands this, asking for the provision. So the request that we have isn't necessarily change my life circumstances, but give me what I need to get through this. Give me what I need spiritually and physically to make it through, and we know, we ask, when we ask God our Father, he's well-resourced, everything belongs to God, nothing is beyond his, his fingertips, and we know that he's generous towards us, so he's willing to give us what we need to get through the day. What we need, God supplies. And so we can go to God asking for food and shelter as he takes care of us physically, but even more pressing, he takes care of our, our spiritual needs. Right? The spiritual crisis that we find ourselves in, specifically in sin, that there's this brokenness, there's this fracture in a relationship where going to God and approaching him as our heavenly father because of our sin makes it, excuse me, really hard for us. Right, I think this is part of the reason why, why we become so reluctant to pray is because I don't know if I can approach God because I, my track record this week wasn't very good. I did a lot of sinning this week and I'm not sure if God wants to actually hear from me or not. And so well, I'll just, I'll just try to play the good guy for a little bit, try to get back in his good grace. Well, Jesus said, listen, that's not necessary. That's, that's part of the religious posturing of the hypocrites. Instead, what Jesus offers us is, is taking care of the spiritual crisis and forgiveness of our sins by remedying our broken condition. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. He frees us. He gives us access to God so that we don't have to pretend, that we don't have to put ourselves together, pull us up, ourselves up by the bootstraps. Jesus forgives us and restores us to a relationship when we have severed ties with God through our sin. So we see the provisions. Now finally, the, the, the fourth reason why we go to God in prayer is because we need help. It, it's so that we would be empowered by God, by the Holy Spirit. He says, okay, so verse 12 comes off, forgives our debts, forgives our sins, 
as we have also forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And there's this caveat here in verse 14 and 15, which we'll get to in a minute. But Jesus is saying here, look, to live the way that God intends for you to live, to live this kingdom life that, that God, that Jesus has afforded you to live, needs assistance from the Holy Spirit. Left to ourselves, we will fail. We'll stumble right back into sin. We'll mess it up. We'll push God away. Hard-heartedness will take over us. And, and, and then eventually prayer becomes like a non-factor in our life. But we're asking for the help of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to be kept from temptation. This is, this is really important. I sense this in my own life. I know that there are weeks where I go through my week thinking, man, I just, you know, kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's like, I don't know if I can go to God. I feel like I've, I've been swept into temptation. I've let the hardness of my heart take over. And when that happens, when, when the hardness of my heart prevails, it makes prayer a non-factor in my life. I become so reluctant to pray. And I'm sure you, you can relate to this in some ways. Well, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to have a malleable heart. And here's how. You ask for the Spirit to protect you from sin, to keep you from evil, to keep you from temptation, to lead you away from those things. Now, there are gonna be times where the Holy Spirit takes you through temptations. C.S. Lewis talks about like the only way that you can know, know the fullness of temptation is when you actually resist it. And so the Spirit is, there are gonna be times the Spirit leads us to a point of temptation, just as Jesus was led to temptation in the wilderness. But it's so that we can lay into the power of the Holy Spirit to propel us through those things, to bring us through unscathed, to show off God's power and might in our lives. And so it's not that we're gonna le- live a temptless life, but that Jesus would lead us through it. The Holy Spirit would lead us through it in a way where it keeps our feet on the straight and narrow path of life. But here's the other thing. Not just keeping us from temptation. We're asking the Holy Spirit to enable us to live the supernatural kingdom life that we just can't do in our own, by our own resources. Specifically, to forgive those who have sinned against us. Right, that's the debtors, that language, right? If, if this is a, a, think of our relationship with God in terms of commerce, every sin is a withdrawal from God. We're taking away from God's glory. And so we're accumulating debt, the same mentality that we're sinning against God, right? People have sinned against us. This is the reality. If you live in community, I mean, you, you don't even have to be in Christian community to realize this. It's just a part of living with sinners is that you're going to be sinned against and what are you gonna do with it? Are you gonna keep a, a record like we confess today, a record of these long wrongs that people have sinned against you? Hold it against them? Make them jump through your hoops? Well, well Jesus says, no, no, no. See, to live a kingdom life means that you forgive as you've been forgiven. See, this is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, working forgiveness in our hearts so thoroughly that it frees us to forgive other people. It keeps us from holding grudges, making people jump through our hoops, or even keeping the power to manipulate people to get what we want. But there's a warning here, what Jesus gives us in verse 14 and 15 about this. That he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. 
Now there's a sense here, there's, there's a conditional sense of our forgiveness. Not in that I have to do this first, but as a product of the forgiveness that you've received in Christ, that it spills over into forgiveness. Others. In fact, it's an evidence that you've received forgiveness from Christ. To keep other people in unforgiveness shows that you yourself don't understand God's thoroughness of forgiveness. But when you do understand that, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, you gladly give that over to other people. And the gospel is the only way that you can forgive like this. Otherwise, you're keeping a a long list or even a short list. You're gonna have this sort of relational dysfunction between you and the person you've sinned or that's sinned against you that's gonna keep this kind of ebbing and flowing, but with the gospel, it keeps us steady. Our our affections, our desires, our, our care for these people is guided by the love and forgiveness of Christ. In other words, you can't forgive until you've been forgiven in this way. See, what makes this prayer effective? What makes prayer such a reward, being in the presence of God, asking him for what we need, aligning our wills to God's will, right? having the spirit empower us, what makes this happen is the fact that we're praying in Jesus' name. This whole thing revolves around Jesus. See, it's because Jesus, listen, it's because Jesus was turned away on the cross when, when all of our sin was placed on him and God turned his face from him it's be, and then we get his righteousness that God turns his face to us. If that doesn't happen, God has, like, there's no guarantee God hears our prayers. I mean, he hears it, but, but what does he owe us? See, Jesus' forgiveness is what enables us to forgive, but Jesus' forgiveness on the cross is what gives us the ability to pray to God. It bridges the chasm of sin. And this is why we pray. This is why it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's not just a prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, but it's effective because of Jesus. He's the one that gives us the ability to access God. That might be my car. (laughs) See, without the gospel, without Jesus, prayer is just throwing something up to the sky. But with Jesus, with our faith in him, going to God in Jesus' name makes our prayers effective. It makes them do what God wants them to do, to to give us the ability to commune with him to get what we need for our daily lives, to to align ourselves to God's will and empower us to live kingdom life now. I pray that 2021 would even more so be a year of prayer. That it would be, that we as a church would be so moved to prayer for our own personal advantage, right? That the own reward that Jesus has for us as we go into secret, but so that we'd see the glory of God come to the Quad Cities and fill this place like it will in the new heavens, new earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your glory. We thank you that you have given us a way to communicate to you, not that you're a distant God, but you are our heavenly Father and we've been given access and the privilege in Jesus to call you that. And so we ask that you would give us 
the ability to see the beauty, the, the glory, the reward, the treasure that prayer is, that you would quicken our, our hearts and our minds to go to prayer uh, instead of being entertained by social media or, or doing the checklist, but making prayer a priority in our lives that you would transform us from the inside out, not, not from the outside in like the hypocrites, not, not in a way where we have to heap up words in order to be heard, but, but give us concise prayers, knowing that you hear us in the gospel, that your ears are open to us, that your face is on us because of the work of Jesus. Our sin does not discount us, disqualify us in a definitive way because the grace of Jesus is greater than our sin. We thank you for this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>